guys, I am fantasy author J.H. Fleming. And I'm fantasy author Philip Dreyer Duncan. And with us as always, the man most well known for his role as the bean in the classic tale Jack and the Beanstalk. He is our magic bean. Hello, Christopher. Hi, Phil. And with us today is author David J. Peterson. He's the author of the Watson World series and the Angst Fantasy series. Hi, David. Hi, guys. How's everybody? Lovely. How have you been? It's been too long. I'm doing really well. Just uh, spending my time pretending to write and, uh, yeah, enjoying life. Good. You know, I just saw earlier that one of my other friends actually edited one of your books. I didn't know that. Who's that? Brian Thomas Schmidt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He helped out with uh, I've written one kid's book called Claude Makes a Friend. It's about how to deal with being bullied. And yeah, Brian provided some great feedback and input for that book. Awesome. I might need to read that being on this podcast with Chris and JH. They're kind of mean to me sometimes. Yeah, I don't blame them. (laughs) Yeah, it's deserved. (laughs) Or I mean, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) Well, just before we get started, I have a couple of things I wanted to talk about. First of which is this voicemail I got the other day. This voicemail came from one of my best friends in the whole world. And I have that visual voicemail thing on my phone. It translated it for whatever reason. We were like in a restaurant and I couldn't get the voicemail to actually play. But the translation came up. And what I'm going to tell you, dear listeners, about this voicemail, I'm going to read to you what it says. And I'm going to tell you that the translator got it 80% accurate. Now, Whatever that 20% is that's not accurate, you're going to have to figure out on your own. But here's what the voicemail says. Wi-Fi subscriber, wireless piece of blank, just call me back. Actually, don't call me back. No, call me back and then text me and then call me. Thank you. Bye. This is Shane. I'm coming home. I didn't order again. (laughs) That was 80% right. Just keep that in mind. That was 80% accurate. It sounds like something my daughter would have texted us back in high school. (laughs) (laughs) I did call him and then I texted him and then I called him and eventually he called me back. And believe it or not, what he wanted to talk about was the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently he's been listening. (laughs) That wasn't who I was guessing when you read it off. So now I'm starting to think there's a pattern with your friends. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I know who you were thinking it was. It was not real life, Axel. (laughs) His are even stranger. Also, he doesn't leave voicemails generally. He just calls back over and over until you answer. But I have another story I have to tell. And this took place about 30 minutes after I got the voicemail. This might be one of those stories that's funny to me and not other people because I have a sick sense of humor. But I found this hilarious. And as it was happening in real time, I was putting messages into our podcast Discord group. And just trying to capture everything in the moment so I didn't lose any of this magic. And poor Chris was like, what is happening? And I was like, sorry, you got to wait till Wednesday. Sorry, Chris, once again, for making you wait. No, either I'll get used to it. You'll quit doing it. Or I'll start finding ways to edit you in weird situations. I have a feeling you're going to do that to me anyway. Just take out every third word. (laughs) (laughs) I already do that. They're usually like, um, or. (laughs) Yeah, David, you've met me in person many times. You know, I'm not as intelligent as I sound on the podcast. Not that I sound particularly intelligent. Yes, you do sound very intelligent on the podcast. Good job, Chris. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) All right. So let me set the stage. JH and my sister and I went to a concert. 
at a rather large amphitheater. We get in line and we're standing outside. There's this guy across the street standing on the sidewalk and he's like wearing a sign and he has a bullhorn and he's basically preaching, you know, or whatever. So, yeah, fine. Cool. Good for you. Whatever. I don't care. But then we notice he's saying some really bizarre things to all the people standing in line, such as if you're in this line, you're smoking weed, you're drinking booze and cheating on your wife. That was one of the hits he yelled at the crowd. And about that time, my ears perked up and I was like, what is this? This isn't like a normal somebody standing on the side of the road preaching. This person is extra. He called us all sinners. He called some poor guy an old man, yelled something about Leonard Skinner, and then informed him that he was dying a little bit every day. And then he started to berate the security guards and told them that they needed to turn from their sins and that they were going to hell. One of my favorite lines was, your filthy cigarettes and your dirty dancing. I've obviously been waiting in the wrong lines. This sounds like a fun place to be. (laughs) That's what I said. I'm like, this is worth the price of the ticket alone. Like, this is amazing. This is great content. He told us, you people are all ignorant. Of course, by this point, some of the crowd are yelling back at this guy, right? You know, somebody says he's disturbing the peace. And he said, I'm going to disturb your peace. You don't have peace. You all cheat on your wife and abuse your children. Michael Jackson is in hell. John Lennon is in hell. (laughs) It was amazing. Some guy on a golf cart drove by him and like screeched on the brakes and hopped out and tried to give him a hug and he wouldn't go for it. So was the concert good? Yeah. Okay. so here's the thing. And I saved this for the end because after hearing all that, you probably assume I was at some kind of rap concert or like a metal concert or something kind of racy, right? I was at an Avett Brothers concert. Who knew? <laughs> Who was the Avett Brothers? They are like the most innocuous like country band. They sing songs about their ex-girlfriends and loving everyone. I don't think there's a swear word in any of their songs. There's nothing controversial about them at all. Which in fairness, the guy was yelling about the amphitheater and how every concert there was sinful. And I remember looking at JH and I was like, last time we were here, wasn't it for Josh Groban? (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing sinful about that. (laughs) But I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I thought that was hilarious. So was he the opening act? (laughs) Well, and when they let us in, there was like a good hour before the show started. I was like, put him on stage. Let's do this thing. He obviously loves the attention. Clearly, there were some things going on there, but it was amazing. It was the best waiting in line I ever had to do was listening to this guy scream at everybody. All right. On to the most important topic. David, where are you going to be in a couple weeks? I'm going to be at SoonerCon, which is one of my favorite conventions in Oklahoma City. Best convention ever. Oh, it's pretty fantastic. Not to oversell it. (laughs) Not to oversell it. (laughs) I used to be a vendor at the con. and. How many people attend that con? Is it 3,500, 5,000? That's the range. I think 3,500 to 5,000, yeah. And I would be a vendor at Planet Comic Con, where I live in Kansas City, which is, what, 130,000 people? Yeah, it's big. I would sell the same number of books at SoonerCon that I would at Planet. It was pretty incredible. It really is one of the best, for smaller conventions, like it has the best literary track. It really does. And very supportive. 
Yeah, very much so. There's always a good group of authors there. They always bring in a big name or two and year after year run the best show. Yeah, I'm super excited. And I'm glad to have you on because we'll get to see you again in a very short amount of time. I am really looking forward to it, but that is twice this month that I have to see you. That's a lot. (laughs) That feels like a lot. (laughs) No, it's going to be a good time. All right. So I introduced David. I mentioned his books, but also David, is. you can find him at djprights.com. Yep. And then also his YouTube channel, which is really stinking good. Thank you. Is Got Angst on YouTube. So G-O-T-A-N-G-S-T on YouTube. David, tell me about your Watson's World series. So Watson's Worlds is a lit RPG, you know, game lit series that I started a couple years ago. And there was a little bit of a break between first book and second book because I also work full time and that was distracting. Don't work full time if you write. That's a mistake. And so it's a little bit of a different animal than anything I've written. My first series was a fantasy series, a little bit more traditional and very linear. I started writing the fourth book for the series and I'm like, no, it needs a prequel. So it's got three prequels and I'm working on the third one right now. Imagine like how the Marvel Cinematic Universe came about in the beginning when the movies were good. <laughs> you, you had, you know, Captain America and Iron Man and Thor, and then they all came together for the Avengers. I'm kind of doing the same thing a little bit with these books. The first book was Entrance Online, and it takes place in part in a virtual fantasy world that's similar to games like New World or World of Warcraft. The second book, Colonize Epilies, it's more of a town building game in the virtual world. And it's sci-fi oriented and it would be not like Sim City, but, you know, town building in that sense. And then the third book I'm working on right now is Battleworld Titus. The games in the virtual world are going to be a little bit more like League of Legends or Dota, if you're familiar with those kind of gladiator type games. And then characters from all three of those worlds will come together to fight a bigger bad in the fourth book, Every World Online. Very cool. And I don't have a clue as to what I'm doing, so wish me luck. (laughs) You obviously do, though, because I think you have a pretty cool fact about the audiobook you're working on. Yeah, the, the second audiobook just came out, and it's published by Podium Audio. And the first book did well enough that they took note, and they are publishing the audiobooks for the entire Watson's World series. It was very flattering and great great people to work with. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Congratulations on that. That's great. Thank you very much. What led you to want to do this series? I love fantasy and that's my go-to and that made the first book easy. But I also, so I love pop culture references like movie references, book references, sci-fi, fantasy, comic books. Yeah. And it's hard to do that in a traditional fantasy book, you know, that just doesn't work. Right. And if you do, it pulls people out. I snuck some in, but they're so subtle, it's really hard to find in my first series. I mean, you'd have to read those books like five times to pull it out. And then you'd be like, is that is that from Star Wars? Really? <laughs> but I mean, it's a pretty obscure. In Entrus, I got to do that a lot. And it was so much fun. And in the second world, Colonize Epilies, I got to play around with science fiction, which I haven't done before. It's also a little bit of horror and suspense and 
That was very new to me. I'm still waiting to see if it scared anybody. Uh, my mom thought it was messed up and she didn't like the <laughs> monsters in it. So I'm going with that for now. <laughs> that's fair. No, that's a cool idea. You know, with it being a lit RPG, it gives you a chance to kind of branch out a little bit more than what you're used to. So that's fun. Yeah. My audience has definitely expanded. I think the genre is a little clicky and it's pretty demanding. They would really like me to write a book every three months. <laughs> and yeah, that has yet to happen. That will uh, segue us into something else I wanted to ask you about while you were on here, because I've actually thought about you a few times in the last year. Oh, do tell. What did I do wrong? <laughs> it wasn't actually you didn't do anything wrong at all. <sighs> I'm about to pay you a compliment, David. Don't make me not do it. <laughs> well, thank, I'll shut up now. Thank you. No, I, uh, I've always had a little bit of trouble with my wrist and hands with my writing. You know, some carpal tunnel-y things. And last, like, November, I started getting it back in the elbows. And it became a real challenge for me. I actually took a few months off and just didn't write at all and tried to just see if it would go away, ease off, and it really wouldn't. I was like, man, am I going to have to go do surgeries? What's going to happen? Am I even going to be able to continue pursuing writing? Like, what does this look like? And every time I'd start feeling down, I'd be like, dude, if David can still produce books with Parkinson's, I think you can handle a little bit of cubital tunnel. Let's buck up. Come on, <laughs> what are we doing? I think I figured out the main cause of it and it's starting to ease off. But good. I did it several times. I was like, if David could do it, I, I can get through this. Yeah. I mean, whether it's Parkinson's or I mean, there's so many different challenges that people face out there to make writing or whatever you're doing harder. You know, sometimes you just got to accept some things like it's going to be harder. It's going to take longer. You're going to have to put in more time or take breaks when you didn't used to before. Uh, you might have to use different tools. If they continue giving you issues, there are a lot of speech to text programs that are very good. Some are built into the operating system, like the one for the Mac is pretty good. And then, you know, you've got third party apps that are not inexpensive, but like Dragon Naturally Speaking is used by a lot of professional authors. And after you train it, it works very well. So there are workarounds, but never give up. Yeah, so I actually do. I have an account with Dragon and I've used theirs quite a bit. Even before this problem really kicked into gear, I figured out one of the things I like to do because I still like to write by hand a lot. So when I would write by hand, I would then turn around and try to type up everything I'd written, and that would take forever. So I started, instead, I'd write by hand, read it to Dragon, and then upload it, and then I just have to do a little bit of cleanup, and it cut that way down. Well, I mean, a couple of things. Do you find, and I found this, when I used to write by hand and then when I switched to typing, it's almost like you have to have a different mindset because you're doing it differently. Mm -hmm. And I have found that using Dragon or any program like that is once again, another mindset. It's the reason I haven't completely switched over yet, because it's not the same. It's very different. Mm -hmm. You almost have to retrain your brain. But part of the reason I went from writing to typing is because I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I didn't want to have to redo it twice. One advantage you've got by writing it out and reading it out loud is I always think that reading your work out loud is really good for your manuscript. You catch so many things that, you know, your initial readers might not, your alpha or your beta team, but also that you wouldn't have caught when you were writing it. 100% agree with that. I always do a read aloud draft when I'm editing my novels and highly recommend it. 
Yeah, and that is one of the things I like about using the dragon that way, because basically by the time I've got it rejoined to my manuscript, I've basically had three passes, which is nice. Yeah, that's excellent. Usually if I make three passes and it doesn't make sense, it's a bad sign. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Now, I think, J.H., you still write everything by hand first, don't you? No. Only, like, I'll switch as the mood strikes me. Earlier this week, I was having trouble where I was trying to type and I just stared at the screen. So I eventually switched to handwriting and that got my brain where it needed to be to work on the story. And then once that started working, I was able to switch back to just typing. But I haven't written first as like my main thing probably since 2014. Like you said, I used to always write by hand first. And then I went to a writer's retreat and wrote 5,000 words in a single day by hand. Nice. And my hands were like, nope, we're not doing this anymore. So I switched to typing after that. I usually do the same thing. If I'm trying to work on a scene and I can't quite get my brain moving, I'll switch to the pen and paper. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll have to write a paragraph and I'm good. But then virtually every battle scene I've ever written has been done by hand. I do what I call scene scratching, where basically as quick as my hand can move, it's like, dash, this is what happens. Dash, this is what happens. And I'll just be moving very quickly. And if all of a sudden, like a conversation happens, I might slow down and write out that whole conversation. But I'm kind of hitting keywords and just super fast, you know, scratching out this battle scene or whatever in my head. I usually just drink more rum. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what I need to try next time. Yeah, it's Ernest Hemingway. Right, drunk, edit, sober. <laughs> I've been doing that wrong the whole time. I was writing sober and editing drunk. No wonder <laughs> JH has to clean up so much of my flaws. Now, if I remember right, David, I think that was a particularly brutal blow for you because you started, oh, geez, what was it, like 2015-ish? You were started pursuing writing pretty seriously? I, I want to say I, I published Angst back in 2010. Oh, wow. Each book took me a couple years to write just because of work. Let me rephrase that. I think I met you around 2015. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I was probably on book three by then. And I always had the intent of writing faster, but at the end of the day, it's more important to get the story right, you know? But when the Parkinson's hit, it really did slow me down initially because if nothing else, just for the shock of it. Yeah. But I wasn't tremoring that bad. And something to understand about Parkinson's is it's more than just the tremor. I mean, tremor is... It's a big deal, and they give you a lot of meds to address it, but there's a huge list that's worth checking out if if you know anybody with Parkinson's. I mean, it's in your brain, right? And everybody's Mm -hmm. brain is wired different, so everybody gets Parkinson's differently, and it can cause depression, anxiety. It can cause uh, skin conditions. Fortunately, I don't have that, at least not yet. Um, It can can cause... um, uh, Forgetfulness? Yeah, yeah, forgetfulness. <laughs> I, it's actually kind of a funny story. So eventually it can, especially with some of the meds, can cause hallucinations. Oh, wow. But for me, I mean, I've got younger onset Parkinson's because most people don't get it until they're much older. But my parents didn't know that. So we live in a, in a suburb of Kansas City and there was a fox in my backyard. You know, it, it can happen. It was odd, but so I went and told my parents and they brought my wife, Angie, aside and they're like, is, is he hallucinating already? <laughs> and because they thought that there's no way a fox could be in the backyard. And then one of my neighbors caught a picture of it and put it on Facebook. I'm like, ha, 
See, not yet. <laughs> not there yet. <laughs> Thanks, mom and dad. Right. But, you know, it's a progressive disease and it's degenerative. So, I mean, it's compounding, you know, it's getting worse mm-hmm. and it, it does make writing harder. But like I said, don't give up. Yeah. And you did a brilliant video about that as well on David's YouTube. So if anybody knows anyone who's, you know, even if it's not just a writing thing, but just dealing with Parkinson's, he's got a great video on the YouTube channel. Thanks. That video was a lot of fun to shoot. My wife actually made me do it. <laughs> I, I wrote it out. We went on vacation in Colorado and I was anxious to get back. I'm like, you know, forget it. And just, I was being grumpy. And she's like, pull over and do it now. This looks like a nice spot. So we ended up shooting it in three different places, the same video and cutting between them. My alma mater is Madison, Wisconsin. That's where I met my wife. And so we shot it again there and then in my studio and cut it all together. And yeah, it was a little bit different. I'm glad she pushed you into that because it is a very good video. It's very cool the way you cut it from the different locations. Thanks. And are you still doing a lot with the YouTube channel? Let's see. I have the best of intentions. I've actually got a couple of scripts ready to go. I even built out a room to be a YouTube studio. Mm-hmm. My daughter's old room. You know, the kids are all moved out, which is fantastic, by the way. <laughs> My wife's like, yeah, make her bedroom a studio. And right now we've got guests staying with us. So it's now a bedroom again. But when I was busy converting it, my daughter showed up and she's like, my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) But I definitely plan on coming out with more videos. I don't do it consistently because I don't consider it, you know, my job. It's not my end goal to make money on YouTube for advertising. I mean, you have to have a huge following for that. I just like to share what I know when it comes to me. And if it helps people, that's great. Yeah, your videos are top notch. They're they're really good. I especially enjoyed the one about Marvel. <laughs> yeah, my corgi is a lot. So nobody in my neighborhood knows who I am. They all know my dog. <laughs> She's got a lot, a lot of energy, and I actually have to walk her twice a day, which is good for me. But we end up walking like a mile and a half a day. And, you know, the kids and people all come up to her and give her love, and she loves that. She's big on attention. And We'll be walking by, and if kids are getting on the bus, we're like, hi, Marvel. And I'll be like, yeah, hi, hi, Marvel. (laughs) (laughs) She's great. She keeps me busy. She's a very good dog. JH and I used to have a Yorkie, and we went to England. We were waiting for a bus from Milton Keynes to Oxford, and there was this lady sitting there with her dad. And they started talking to us. And for some reason, they asked us if we had any pets or whatever. And JH was like, yeah, you know, we've got a Yorkie. And they misheard us and thought we said Corgi. <laughs> and so the lady turns and she's like, did you hear? Did you hear that, Dad? They have a Corgi just like the Queen. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then were, you can't say no. Uh-huh. Right. It was like, do we? And they went on and on for a while. I was like, do we say anything? Or... I will just get on the bus and that'll be the end of this. And then we got on the bus and the dad moved over and sat in the seat in front of us and then turned around like over the seat like a kid. And <laughs> I was like a 75 year old man and just talked to us all the way to Oxford. I, I didn't get a Corgi because they were popular. We, we actually have always grown up with black labs and they've always been great dogs. My daughter got a Corgi and we ended up helping to raise her. Her dog's name is Gidget and she was in school at the time. So we helped as we could. And I'm like, you know, it'd be kind of fun to get another one. And my wife really didn't want a dog. She suggested adopting an older dog. And I knew right there that she wanted a puppy. 
Because <laughs> that's the same thing, right? But yeah, they've got a following. I actually had an older couple pull over, get out of their car to pet my dog one day. I've never had that happen before. It was <laughs> like, should I start charging? I mean, do you want some of her hair? Or... <laughs> you need to bring her to the uh, conventions with you. Probably. Oh, yeah. Sell even more books or, or less because she'd be such a distraction. You know, that'd be my <laughs> that'd be my greatest fear. No, no, no. Price for pet. One book. <laughs> hey, hey, there you go. Uh, we we can work with that. We've proven that Marvel can make money. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they used to be able to anyway. <laughs> well, when they had good stories, they made money. Go. So there as long go. as your books are good. Indeed. I mean, I think they're still making money. Disney's stock prices aren't really all that appealing, but I, I think they're still making money, right? Yeah, I heard that they just, did they just drop their CFO? Oh, I don't know. I didn't pay that close attention. Yeah, I, their last few movies, like, I know the last two Pixar movies didn't do too well. For me, like, when Avengers Endgame came out, I was kind of like, yeah, end. Good. This was amazing. Super good. But I know you guys are going to milk this as long as you can. But to me, this feels like the end. This is a good place for me to be done. Absolutely. You know, I love superheroes. Obviously, your audience can't see, but I've got like four file cabinets filled with comic books behind me because I grew up collecting comic books. And seeing those movies come from being created from when I was a child, that's been fantastic. But unless they come up with something clever or creative or really well done, I think a break is good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, David, you mentioned your alpha team. So do you use an alpha team and a beta team for readers? And what does that look like? Okay, so I don't know if this is how everybody else does it. This is just kind of what worked for me when I was starting out. When I first started writing Angst, I wasn't sure what to do with it. I got about a dozen chapters in. And that not that the point where you're like, what am I doing with my life? Do I keep doing this? And question, <laughs> yeah. you know, everything. The, the book Midlife Crisis. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I shared it with some people, people that were close to me and wouldn't beat me up too bad, but were also critical enough to then would be honest and say, stop. Mm -hmm. And they didn't say stop. They said kept going. So I did. And now my alpha team consists of a group of people that are much smarter than I am and better looking too. <laughs> but they're readers and they critique me, but in an encouraging way. I know a lot of writers say, go to a writer's group, get thrashed around a little bit and go home crying and you'll be a better writer for it. But I really need a lot of support and encouragement in the beginning. And then after it gets through to my editor, my editor does get abusive, but that's good. Mm -hmm. And then I send it off to my beta team and they will oftentimes post reviews, but most of them are people I don't know. And, they, and they'll provide me good critique on, you know, if something just doesn't work. Usually by the time it gets to them, it's very clean, but once in a while they'll find something and, and on a rare occasion, something big. And I am very grateful. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think it's tough, especially at the beginning. And JH roped me. The only writing group I've ever been a part of was her and one other because I was very cautious about, how do you say it? I was very cautious about what critiques I would want to hear, if that makes sense. Yeah. And to the point now, like I'm just confident that what I'm doing is at least okay, right? Like I know what I'm doing is at least okay. Yeah. And so now I'm kind of in a place where, you know, whenever I finish one, it goes straight to her. Chris will be an early reader. There's a couple other people who might get an early copy, but really then at this point, I'm like, let's let the market judge. 
I'll take the actual reviews and see what happens and go from there, you know? Absolutely. My wife is my first go-to. She's a writer as well. So, David, you've been pretty much indie the whole time I've known you, right? Well, I mean, you know, the audiobook is published by Podium, and I had one story that was included in a small press anthology, but really, I've never sought publication. I've always done indie, and it's been very rewarding. That's also very challenging as well. You got any horror stories you want to share or any tips <laughs> for the audience? You know, I don't tend to dwell on the bad stuff. I have a lot of good memories of things that have happened and things that I am very grateful for. I find that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always thought that being an indie writer, because you don't reach quite the audience that you do as traditional press sometimes, that it tends to be personal. You get connections with a lot of your readers. And I've made some really good friends over the years from people just because of reading my books and had some good experiences. But I have had a few bad ones. You know, I've, I've been to a lot of conventions. There's a convention called Vision Con down in Springfield. A good con, and there were plenty of people that would stop by and, like, for no reason, they'd just stop at the booth and stare. And one guy, I was like, so can I help you? What do you like to read? He's like, oh, I don't read. <laughs> I'm like, sir, you, you do realize these are books, don't you? <laughs> and he just looked up at me. I'm like, you need to go down to one of the other booths. They don't sell books. <laughs> yeah, that is a weird thing. You know how many times you'd be sitting at your table and somebody would roll up and they would just eyeball everything and be like, hey, how's it going? Do you like to read? And they'd be like, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then you get a lot of people that come by the booth and they want to pitch you their story like you're a publisher. And I'm like, yeah, yeah no, 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 no. Nope. You know what? I don't care. I mean, I care. I'll always encourage somebody to write, but I don't want the details, you know? No, I'll do it for you, David. I'll take the hit on this one. I do not care. <laughs> do not walk up to me and try to get me to read your stuff. I don't have enough time to work on my own stuff. There's no way I'm going to yeah. work on a total strangers. Come on now. Yeah. I mean, ask me what writing tools I use. Yeah, 100%. How I work my writing schedule or how I make it fit into my life. But tell me your story idea. It means absolutely nothing until it's on paper. And, and even then, I'm probably not the best judge for it anyway. 100%. Exactly. That's the thing. And I mean, we always run into that everywhere we go. Well, that and people like to loiter around JH. Do you get stalkers? Sometimes. Not recently, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, unfortunate that she hasn't had any recently or unfortunate that she gets them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's good for stories. So, but yeah, thinking about things that have gone wrong. So People have been a little bit confused about the Watson's World series because the second book wasn't a direct sequel to the first. And I knew that was going to happen. But there were a few people that posted on Reddit like, oh, I've been waiting for two years for the sequel and this is not what I expected. And, you know, I'm really disappointed. And I'm like, oops. But I also <laughs> knew that was going to happen. And it's a little discouraging, but I'm going to keep pressing forward because this is how I had envisioned it. You know, I'm not going to suddenly change course to make other people happy. This is the story. And I think when it's done, people will be like, oh, 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 okay. This is kind of cool. And nor should you, you shouldn't change course at all. But that is what I meant by, you know, the market will tell me at this point, if I put a title out, there are some amount of people who are going to read it. Not that I have any kind of real clout to brag about or anything, but there are some amount of people who will read my stuff and I will get real reviews, right? And that was one of the lessons I learned hard with the Blade Mage. I got some hate there was a few reviewers who five-starred the first two books, said they absolutely loved it. 
hit book three and they were like, oh, he left a cliffhanger done. Never reading another <laughs> of your books. I'm out. And it's like, oh, OK, well, that's a lesson learned. You know, not that I necessarily can't do a cliffhanger if I want to, but if I can avoid it, some people are going to, you know, hate that. So that's fine. I get it. I love, love writing cliffhangers. I, I absolutely do. And I will warn anybody, if you don't like cliffhangers, don't read my books. A good chunk of them have them. And I feel no shame for that because it's not a never ending story. I mean, if you have a, a definitive conclusion in mind, like, you're not just leaving them hanging on for 20 books. For me, the angst series was five books and I knew exactly how it was going to end. And most of those books in between, yeah, they lead right into the next one. So yeah, I don't feel bad about that. Nor should you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. The Watson's World series, the first three books kind of end with a similar cliffhanger that lead to the fourth. And there was no other way I could have done it based on what I'm planning for the fourth book. So. You know, you kind of do what you have to. Yeah. Chart your own course. It sounds awesome. It sounds like a lot of fun. And it sounds like you're having fun with it. And that's what matters, right? Oh, I really am. I'm having a blast. The second book, Colonize Epilese, was my first attempt at horror and suspense. And my first neurologist left her practice and we've become friends. She likes to write and she's been writing a book. So we get together and talk about writing and stuff. And nice thing about having a like incredibly intelligent neurologist on tap is when I was explaining some of the mental things I was doing in the book, which I really don't want to go into too much detail with, sure. she was like, oh, look into transcranial magnetic stimulation. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> and, you know, that just rolled off her tongue. And so I looked it up and it led me to something else. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. So, yes, it's uh, I'm very grateful, I'm, though she has yet to agree to join my alpha or beta team. <laughs> Maybe soon. Maybe after she hears this podcast. <laughs> or she'll go running. A lot of people are probably going to go running. But hey, there's a train ad coming, people. Are you tired of overly long, complicated, and pretentious reading material? Annoyed with meandering plots and words that make you reach for a dictionary? What you need is a staycation with the ongoing series The Blade Mage, a fast-paced urban story where elements of sci-fi and fantasy meet mystery and take you on an adventure, always through the scenic route. Worried about price? Not to fret. There's not a $5 word in the Blade Mage. So head over to Amazon and start your adventures with Wyatt, courtesy of author Philip Dreyer Duncan. Let's do the news. So uh, a couple episodes ago, I think we talked about how book sales were up across the board. Apparently, we jumped the gun a little bit because now the April information is out. And according to Publishers Weekly... Sales fell 7.6% pretty much across the board in April. That's okay. It wasn't my books that weren't selling the first time, and it's not my books that are still not selling now. I think those words made sense. Now you want to try that again? <laughs> nope, moving on. <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about was the big indie author data drop 2023. This is something I didn't know about, but it's really cool, actually. And what it is, is the Alliance of Independent Authors put together a research survey, and they went and talked to many different organizations across the indie sphere and groups and things and tried to collect as much data as they could about sales. If I just kind of scroll through here. Um, you know, they talked to Drafted Digital, 20 Books, The Self-Publishing Formula, Written Word Media, Kalytics, 
Amazon themselves. And basically, you should go check it out. Just go to Alliance of Independent Authors, Google that, pull up their site, and you can find this report that shows you all kinds of data about indie book sales and what's going on. And I won't go into too deep into it, but there's just, and it shows that sales are increasing across the indie sphere, which is cool as well um, for those of us who have, you know, self-published titles or small press titles. Well, it sounds like you said they're talking to most of the people that make the tools you were showing me. Yes, that is true. They clearly knew who they were going to talk to. They were talking to the right people to get, you know, this sort of information. It looks like they've got annual income for indie authors. Did it say a nickel? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I missed that part there, David. Oh, look, it does have a most popular genres. Romance, 25%. Fantasy sci-fi spec, 18%. Crime thriller detective, 13%. Which is interesting to me, actually, because I think if you're talking trad, romance would be still like the biggest. But... I don't think fantasy and sci-fi is in the traditional sphere is bigger than crime and thriller detective. I could be wrong, but. The real thing to learn there is you need to start using covers that have the, hey, where's my shirt? (laughs) It also helps if you're writing a, hey, where's my shirt type of book. If you just put the romance covers on your crime novel, things are not going to work out for you. I'm thinking, you know, your Blade Mage covers, you can get them shopless. It'd be cool. (laughs) Alternative covers. (laughs) You know, I've had so many people be like, I mean, your cover is really cool, but like, I don't know why you're showing that dude's chest. I'm like, look, I didn't take the picture. <laughs> I didn't I didn't do all of this. I just uh, it's fine. Whatever. Fine. Uh, I believe J.H. is going to pick up our next news topic. So the publishing company, Simon and Schuster, they are owned by a parent company called Paramount Global. We talked a little bit about this before, where last year um, they put Simon & Schuster up for sale and Penguin Random House tried to buy Simon & Schuster. That was actually blocked, but it looks like Paramount Global is putting it back up for sale and now HarperCollins is attempting to buy it. For some reason, they think that they will not be blocked, which is interesting. I'm wondering why they think that way. I believe it's because HarperCollins is owned by Wayne Enterprises. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're one of the big five publishing companies as well. So I'm interested to see what happens with that. That could, I don't know, <laughs> that could be as bad as Penguin Random House attempting to buy them before. Either way, like the merger would not be good. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and, and say when I heard Penguin was trying to buy Simon & Schuster, I didn't love that idea. And I don't love it anymore with Harper Collins doing it. I mean, what I want to know, Phil, is why you think that Harper Collins is the hero if all the rest of them are Batman villains, why that's Batman. I don't know. I was just trying to make a joke that you would laugh at and you didn't, but fortunately JH and David did. So I'll take what I can get. But in all seriousness, it's interesting that they think they won't be blocked. I wonder what they're basing that on. I don't love the idea of Simon and Schuster getting wrapped up under one of these other big trad publishers for those, you know, trying to seek a career through traditional publishing, it's it's hard enough with the small amount that are out there. So, you know, it used to not be the big five. It used to be the big however many it was, and they've slowly all been wrapped up under under different houses. So, But it'll be interesting to see how things play out. 
So I'm onto your plan now. If you're trying to actually get me to laugh on here, it's not going to happen because I don't want anybody going deaf. <laughs> I do. I was that was one of the reasons I wanted you on the podcast is I wanted people to hear that beautiful laugh. Yeah, it just adds to the hashtag that still no one's hashtag to me. Come on, people. What What is the hashtag we're supposed to use? Hashtag Chris sounds hot. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> As I would say to my wife, of all of the options, that's definitely one thing I could type out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Originally, the question was how to get a hold of me. And that was one of his things was he says, if you want to get hold of Chris, send it to him. Say, hey, Phil, whatever it is you want to say. And then hashtag tell Chris. But then that evolved into hashtag Chris sounds hot. Oh, yeah. Natural progression. Absolutely. The natural progression. <laughs> and now to our AI correspondent, Christopher. What do you have to tell us about AI this week? Well, the current big thing this week is that voice actors seem to be concerned that their jobs are in question now from the AI juggernaut, shall we say. Our robot overlords are coming for them next. Fair. Which is interesting because Goody Reader actually has an article indicating that Amazon, Apple, and Google are embracing the AI human voice clones. <laughs> and the flip side of that, where it's talking about the voice actors going, oh, crap, we're all going to lose our jobs. I think they might be related. <laughs> yeah, those two those two topics might be related. That has been a concern for a while. And, and honestly, this is one where I feel like a lot of different authors I've spoken to, and I'm not going to call out names because... I think this is going to be tense in the coming days, but um, there are some authors I know who are also embracing that and they're going, look, it cost me a lot of money to get a voice actor to do a quality job on my book. And if I can use an AI and it doesn't cost me as much, I'm going to go that route. It doesn't sound the same, though, does it? They're not quite there. No, it's not quite there. The piece that I want people to think about that I think gets missed the most is If you're worried about your job because you're worried you're going to lose your income, do you really want to propagate that for somebody else or their industry? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's the pay it forward. Yeah, I'd be much more inclined to use humans on everything. Uh, You know, like I think I said it last week is obviously if you're pursuing a traditional path, you need to stay away from all of it probably because there's a lot of publishers who are saying nothing of your work can be touched by AI. And, you know, I mentioned the flip side is if you're all self-publishing, if you're all indie, then I sat there and I couldn't think of what I would actually be comfortable using it for. And if we as authors, to your point, Chris, are worried that AI is going to run us out of our own business, why would we support it doing it to voice actors, especially some of the, you know, there's so much great voice talent out there and some of the books they do. I mean, when I go to Audible, I, I, if I'm looking for something new, I will look by my favorite narrators. I don't really listen to stuff any more than I read, which I haven't read any new authors once Phil became my favorite so that I could stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> but talking to Phil, who does listen to a lot of audiobooks, I've had some of them, the Monster Hunter series, I think. I, I think I might have heard almost uh-huh. as much about the narrator as I did about the story. You summoned a monster. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my corgi is very barky. She's very excited because <laughs> somebody came home. Sorry about that. Mm. No, you're good. A corgi barking is exactly what this podcast needed. 
Uh, a long time ago, I used to travel a lot for work and I'd listen to books on tape. That's how old I am. And David Ogden Steers, if you remember him, he was Winchester and MASH, did the Tom Clancy series initially. And, you know, I Tom Clancy, I, I love fantasy and sci-fi. Tom Clancy wasn't really in my wheelhouse, but I could listen to that man read audiobooks all day long. He was just so good. And you know, you listen to an AI read something, it's like Spock trying to read a romance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Captain, I think they fornicate at this point. <laughs> you know, it, it just, it doesn't work yet. Maybe it will. I think it will, David. There's a few of them, I think, that are getting pretty close to having a viable product, but it's just going to come down to authors and publishers making a decision. Do they want to go the cheaper route or, you know, do they want to use people? That's not to say that it's not there yet. That's just to say that it's only replacing the ones you wouldn't want to use if you can afford not to. Yeah, right. It's an interesting situation for sure. And then he kissed her. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the guy I want reading my stuff. <laughs> Gonna be full of subliminal messages. Hopefully they're good subliminal messages. Hopefully the robot overlords are sliding in messages about how we need to take our vitamins and watch our sugar intake and Oh, it's okay to eat soylent green. Yeah. Patch your computers. <laughs> you know, being robots. Have you watered your keyboard today? <laughs> uh, anything else on the AI front, Christopher? Yes, actually. And I, I'm touched that you threw this one my way. Apparently, some erotic fan fiction writers have decided that they're going to go out and screw with AI in an only somewhat literal sense. I thought you would like this story. Apparently, they are trying to get a lot of their fan fiction published in places that the AIs would be trained on so that it adds some very unusual vocabulary as common keywords. <laughs> Increasing the frequency it sees it should increase the frequency it outputs it. I won't repeat any of the terms here, but it is very entertaining. Oh, oh man. It's good enough. They can Google it. The uh, <laughs> Omegaverse, well, one word is apparently who is organizing this. So not for the faint of heart. And good for them, really. I mean, have some fun at the robot's expense. Why not? That or we'll just get them into niche furry erotica as much as the other <laughs> Rule 34 enjoyers. Do you want Skynet? Because this is how you get Skynet. No, that's how you get kinky Skynet. Yeah, I was going to say naughty Skynet. I don't think I want that. Sky fishnets. You have been terminated. <laughs> I think JH has our next bit of news for us. Yeah, so it looks like, speaking of, I guess, robots and getting into the future, I never thought this would be a thing, but apparently there is a new VR reader that, like a virtual reality device as an ebook reader basically like a pair of glasses with e-ink lenses that's goal is to lock you into your ebooks world without distraction. Yeah, it looks like that's still in beta at the moment, but it's kind of interesting. Almost reminds me of like something from Ready Player One where you have like the lenses and then you're in like the virtual world. It probably won't be like that, but it'll be on that track. Yeah, for $300, you know, the Quest, uh, which is the Facebook Oculus Quest, MetaQuest, whatever they're calling it today, I think it goes for, what, $350? Mm. And it does a lot, you know, games, 
I own one and I brought it to my parents. And the first thing my mom says is, isn't that for porn? (laughs) (laughs) Great. My mom thinks VR is for porn. Like, you're not wrong, mom, but um, I can see something like that being an app within VR, like the new Apple headset, which is, you know, made for augmented reality and you can have a book in front of you. But to make it solely for books and the remote that you use to flip pages for three hundred dollars, um, I wish them luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, looking at the articles, it looks like kind of the idea behind it was that people want to be able to kind of focus and not have distractions. At least that's the idea behind them creating it was to sort of dumb down the tech a little bit to where this is all it does. Because I guess there is some sort of market, at least for that. I don't know how big it is, but you see other things like that with like, I know I've seen this one, it's an actual writing device, looks like a keyboard, but it's like just a tiny screen. You don't need the internet. Um, I don't remember what it's called at the moment, but you like, you see things like that, where it's like, that's all it does. And you, you can't get distracted by social media or a text message or whatever. So if people are actually kind of reverting to those sorts of devices, then maybe it will do well. I don't know. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I heard the other day that there's a company who they specialize in flip phones or like phones that are just text messaging and calls again or something like that. And apparently their sales are like on the rise exponentially. You know, some people are just like, I am so tired of having a smartphone. I, I want to go back to something else. Mm-hmm. And I could see you might want to a different way to read your ebooks if you have that. So maybe it'll probably get there eventually. Like there's going to be a point we slap on a headset and it's like, you know, the books downloaded into our brains. Right. I think that like, I've got a thousand apps on my phone and I maybe use two. (laughs) 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 And even with a smartphone, there's, there's a way around that to where you don't have the distractions. I mean, so I've, I just recently discovered my, I've got a Android galaxy, whatever, but it's got, a thing called modes where you can actually like you can set like a work mode or writing mode, whatever you want to call it. And you can choose what apps are allowed to kind of get through that and all the rest of them are blocked. So I can turn that on and only allow my word tracker apps on my phone. So that way, if I'm looking at my phone, that's all I can see any messages or calls or anything. None of it can get through while I've got that turned on and I can put a timer on it to where it comes on and turns itself off at a certain time, or I can just do it manually. So yeah, like you can just do something like that. You don't need a whole new device for it, but I guess having that, knowing that I can turn it off and on at any point, you know, that could be a temptation too, I guess. I've actually started forgetting my phone at home and just leaving it there. And that's pretty fantastic too. (laughs) (laughs) I like to leave mine on silent, but I get a lot of hate, mostly from my father when I have my phone silenced. <laughs> yes. He is real bad. He gets, but it's funny because he doesn't always answer my calls. But if I don't answer one of his, I'll get this really angry voicemail like, I don't even know why you had this damn barb thing. I don't, you just might as well have a pager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I miss one of my mom's calls, I get a delightful voicemail that starts with, nothing's wrong. call me back no text me text me and then call me back (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah my my parents are the same way chris i uh, my my dad leaves me about three voice messages a week that starts with uh, we're okay we're still alive (laughs) (laughs) 
they're, they're, they've got a very dark sense of humor. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. That's fine. In other news, the writer strike. It's still going. Entering its third month, there was a march with thousands of people. So it's still going. It's I'm seeing more news articles now. Don't know that they really say anything other than it's still going and lots of people are involved. So. Um, and our final piece of news. This comes from Good E-Reader. And essentially, it says that Amazon is getting flooded with pirated books. That's not cool. So I don't know what this means exactly, other than I assume that people are taking other people's books and uploading them as their own. There's a lot of ways that piracy can happen, and that's a pretty horrible one. Yeah, I'm not sure that's news, though. I mean, they might just be sharing that, but I think that's been going on for quite a while. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, there's an older quote from 2022 in there. So I guess that has been a problem for a while. Um, I don't know anybody that's happened to, though. I don't know how big of a problem it is or if it's growing. And that's why they're talking about it now. Yeah, I've had my books pirated, but I haven't had them like resold under somebody else's name yet. That would be very frustrating. I don't know that I've had mine pirated, but I've had the thing where other other places are relisting my books for obnoxious amounts of money. And that would be like through the expanded distribution. So they'd put my book up for like a hundred bucks. And if somebody bought it, I'd get a dollar and whoever was selling it would get to walk away with like 90 or something, you know? Well, I, when it happened to me and it was recently, I reached out to Amazon and they knew nothing, supposedly. Couldn't have come from us, you know, it couldn't possibly have been downloaded off of our system. And it was a Kindle Unlimited book, had never been published anywhere else. So I think they're... Turning a little bit of a blind eye, unfortunately. Now they have, you just reminded me, when you go into KDP, there is like a, I can't think of what it's called, but there's like the security check you can put on it or make it a... DRM? Yes, the DRM, yeah. Yeah, you can do that. There are still ways around that. I don't care. It's fine. I mean, I don't, like, I want to get paid for my books, but I figure if somebody's going through the trouble of pirating it, they probably weren't going to buy it anyway, you know? Yes, I don't disagree with that. So here's the thing. Like, I've heard of people who have like a big launch coming up for a book they've been working on and it's not out yet. And somehow it gets dropped and pirated and it kind of messes up their whole launch. And that really sucks. And of course, it all sucks when, you know, people are stealing your stuff and you're not getting paid for your hard work. I think all of that is terrible. But I do have sort of a contrarian view on some of the pirating and just that. Then the reason I don't worry about it for my stuff is I know like many moons ago, you know, back when CDs were still a thing, somebody gave me a burnt copy of some CD, right? This band I'd never heard of before. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll listen to that. Whatever. Right. And I kind of forgot about it for a few weeks. And then one day I was like, oh, yeah, I have this, this CD. Let me stick it in and actually listen to it. And I liked it. I liked it a lot, actually. And I was even like, man, I bet my dad will like this, right? And so I put it on his computer. And the next time I went to see him, I was so excited to tell him about it. And he was already listening to it. And he was like, this is amazing. You know, who is this band? And we need to get more of their stuff. Go get more of their stuff. So that led to me buying even the album that, you know, somebody had handed me the burnt copy of. I bought it all. And in the years since, we've been to like six, seven, eight, ten, twelve shows from this band bought hundreds of dollars in t-shirts we've taken lots of people like 
no exaggeration, they probably made a hundred grand or better off of that. There's that side of it as well, too, right? Somebody could pick up your book somewhere where they're downloading it for free or whatever, and they might be like, whoa, this is really good. I need to you know, actually buy a paper copy and get everything that they ever write. That's the hopeful upside, because the downside is you can't really do a damn thing about it anyway. Pirates, come on, buy, buy the books. These people, like, what? listen, none of us on this podcast are making a ton off our books. Don't pirate our stuff, pay for it, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, the the argument that $5 for a cup of coffee, $5 for a book, <laughs> the, the coffee took a few minutes to make. Right. Uh, the books did not. That's always been the weirdest thing to me, too, David. Now that you bring it up, I'm just going to go on a little rant here. People will be like, oh, I don't want to pay $10 for a book. You don't want to pay $10 for a book that you're going to enjoy for the next 20 hours while you read it or whatever. Like, come on. You know, it's the same argument. Like, I can remember I always use this as my reference because it really happened. I can remember being at like a dinner. It was like a steak dinner, you know, so whoever was picking up the tab was, you know, spending 150 bucks or something. Right. And I was catching flack because I'd bought a new video game for $60 or something. And I'm like, listen, let's do the math. Okay. This video game is going to take me about 120 hours to beat. That's about 50 cents an hour for my entertainment. You just blew 150 bucks on a dinner that we're all getting ready to walk away from. Like, come on. No one has a comment. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. You know, you're, you're right. There, so do you ever get people that message you and say, we'd like to buy your house? I, I get that a lot in town where like people send you a letter. They like blanket the neighborhood trying to buy the house at a discount for cash. I, somehow I ended up on the calling list, but it's a texting list. You know, we want to buy your house. And I always say, you know, rather than spending the money on my house, why don't you spend the money on my books? Because then you'll get a lifetime of experience and laughs from that book. As opposed to my house, which you're probably just going to sell for pennies later. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. uh, One of my favorite Chris moments ever when Chris and I worked together, one of the uh, one of the owners of the company was there and he started asking me about my books or whatever. And he made a comment like, oh, you should uh, you should bring me a copy. And before I could say anything, Chris piped up and goes, or you could buy one. Yeah, I've given away a lot, a lot of books. And the people who buy them are tend to be the ones who read them. Right. Yeah, that's true as well. Because then they have a value. Yeah, I'll give some away here and there. I learned I have to be a little bit careful. At a convention last year, I had like one copy of one of my books. And I uh, was like, oh, I'm just going to give this away at the end. So I was like, hey, does anybody want a free urban fantasy book? And people ran to the front. And I literally like I was handing it to this nice lady and someone ripped it out of my hand before she could get to it. Oh, that sucks. And then they bolted out of there. And I was like, oh, my God, you animals. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, so we, we went into the dealer's room and my publisher was there. And so my publisher hooked her up and gave her a free book from from their table. But I was like, well, I cannot believe this just happened. I did not expect that. I thought like two people would raise their hands and I'd make them play paper, rock, scissors or something, you know? Like Phil was saying, I'm on one of the early reader teams for his stuff. I still buy a copy of everything he lets me read on principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my beta team often does the same thing. I mean, just to be supportive and, you know, when they leave reviews, it validates those reviews as well. And 
I do agree with you guys that making it available for free or or it being pirated probably does not hurt. These people wouldn't buy your books anyway. At the same time, I think the only time it's cool to be a pirate is on Halloween. <laughs> or, at the Arr. 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 or at the Red Fair. Or at the Red Fair. Absolutely. Yeah. Or cons. Mm-hmm. There, there's a time yeah. and a place. Yeah. If you're a right. if you're a musical group right. focused on nipples. <laughs> David just turned around and looked behind him like he thought somebody was coming after him. <laughs> I, I was looking for the nipples. Smart man. One of these days we're gonna have to move to video. <laughs> but not till the Chris sounds hot hashtag goes viral. All right, that was our news. All right, next up is the tools segment. We're actually going to talk about some of David's favorite tools. He covers these in his YouTube channel, Got Angst. The video, if you want to look it up, is called The Best Writing and Publishing Software for Writers, Five Apps I Use to Write and Publish Books. So, David, I'll pass it off to you to talk about. Well, thank you. Some of these I use specifically, and some of them I think are high level, you should use something for them. I'll give you an example. And the first is a to-do list, like to-do, or at the time I made this video, I was using a Mac-specific app. But it's good to keep yourself on a schedule and in check, especially if you work on multiple projects. You know, if you're writing and you've got a podcast, or if you're writing and you've got a YouTube channel, it's good to come up with a target list of things to do to keep on track. The next app that I used at the time I was using Evernote and it's still a very good app. It's great for note taking and it's cross platform, which means you can use it on the Mac, on Windows, on your Apple or Android phone. And, you know, if you're going for a walk and all of a sudden something hits you and you get an idea and you make a note in your phone, you can go back to your computer and there is the note so you can copy and paste it or expand on it as you wish. I do a lot of brainstorming that way when I go for walks and it helps. Uh, Right now I'm using an app called Upnote or you'd find it on the web as GetUpnote. It's a little more simple than Evernote, a little less expensive. And it is also cross-platform and not only for Windows and Mac, but for Linux. So I used Evernote several years ago when it sort of first came out and just from you know, the work I was doing and whatever, I ended up on OneNote and I still use OneNote sort of for both of your first two there. I I keep track of my whole life in OneNote and, you know, all my ideas and things on the fly. Have you messed with OneNote at all? I have. How do they compare? Just for me, it's not my favorite interface. Okay. It's kind of like Microsoft Teams, if you've used that. Mm -hmm. Some of Microsoft interfaces, I just don't love it. Sure. And But that's the nice thing about software is there's a lot of options out there. Yeah, yeah, 100%. OneNote, I know a lot of people that use it. It's a great app. The UpNote app that I'm using, it doesn't have a lot of flash and features. It's all marked down. So you can export it into HTML or whatever, you know, if you want to use it for a blog post or something like that. But that's all it does. Okay. That's cool. The third app is actually for writing, and I use Scrivener, which is a very popular app. You can find it on literatureandlatte.com. And it's kind of an all-in-one for organizing your book, writing your book, and getting it ready for publishing. I've been using Scrivener for a very long time. It's available for Windows, for the Mac, and even for the iPad. One of my favorite features about it is that you can 
going kind of like what you were talking about with your phone is you can kind of hide everything else. So you could just have a piece of paper there in front of you on the computer screen to type out your document. So it makes everything else quiet. One of the cool things I think about Scrivener is that they have a 30-day trial, but it's 30 days of use. So if you use it every other day, you get it for 60 days. I mean, that's really a great way to believe in your product. Mm-hmm. Shows that they believe in their product uh, that much. Another app that I messed around with a little bit for brainstorming is Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R. And Plotter is for outlining your book. If you're an outliner, I haven't used them, but they've got templates. So if you know you want to try to fit your idea into a hero story template, you know, they've got that ready to go. But you can actually take that outline from Plotter and export it into Scrivener. I like apps that do just what they say they're going to do. You know, I want a note-taking app that is just for taking notes, not for washing my dishes. (laughs) I I don't want it to be too complicated. You know, Scrivener does a lot of what Plotter does, but that's all that Plotter does. Plotter isn't for writing your book or anything else. It's just for creating that plot, and you can do it high level or you can get detailed about it. The last app that I use is for actually publishing my book, which is Vellum. It's a Mac-only app. There are alternatives you can use for Windows, but Vellum has always worked very well for me. And it's very fast to import a Word document. And, you know, with maybe half an hour of cleanup at the most, I can export it as a hardcover trade paperback ebook for Amazon and Kindle and Google and Apple and all of the distributors. It's funny you mentioned that because two of your five we mentioned... Yeah, I was going to say, I recently started using Vellum, and I absolutely love it. I've been using Scrivener for years. Absolutely love that. Plotter is funny because I actually just came across that this morning and was looking at it a little bit, but you know, haven't actually done anything with it. So it's neat to actually hear someone else who has used it. Well, click on the link from my YouTube video because it's an affiliate link. <laughs> it's, it's actually like the only affiliate I've ever gotten like a dollar from. It's pretty cool. Nice. Uh, that's funny. I'd like to see them improve how they export to Scrivener, but it is a great way to think out your story. Hey, but it's cool that they even have that feature at all to extract directly to Scrivener. That's pretty neat. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. The only thing I had issues with were you can dive deep into character development and some of the templates they've got for character development are actually pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be better than the spreadsheets I've been using, so I should probably (laughs) check it out. I will click your affiliate link when I get there. (laughs) My man. (laughs) Um, JH, anything else on David's tools? Just I also endorse Scrivener and Vellum, and I'll definitely check out Plotter. That sounds useful. Cool. All right, cool. That'll be our tools segment then. All right. On this week's Creatives on Fire, we're going to take another deviation because we have David on with us. And if there's one thing I know about my dear friend David J. Peterson is that he's really good at selling books in person at conventions which is something I wanted to talk about eventually anyways. It's really funny. That was my first thought for the Creatives on Fire segment. And then I realized that David actually also covered this in one of his YouTube videos. So if you want to check out his video about this topic, again, his channel is Got Angst. And the video is titled Selling Books at Comic-Cons, Six Things You Need to Know About Selling Books at Conventions. So 
David, I'll let you take the first one. What's something that somebody needs to know about selling books at conventions? You're not going to make money. (laughs) (laughs) You go to conventions as a marketing tool. I mean, yes, it's possible to make money, but conventions are expensive. A lot of authors will come up during the con, after the con. Oh, I covered my booth fee or my table cost. And, you know, the table cost may be $100, but if it's a big con, that booth fee might be 1000 And that's a lot of books after the price of printing the books, the cost of gas, which is in itself like, what, a million dollars to get there? Something like that, yeah. If you're staying at a hotel, uh, the food that you eat, you know, there are so many expenses that go along with being at the con that just those book sales aren't enough. So use that time to find readers. Don't worry about the numbers of sales. I mean, yeah, it's important as a way to measure how you're doing and whether you want to go back. But, you know, it was always very important to me to vet the people who were coming by to look at my books. I wanted to know if they were going to like them, because if I thought they were going to hate them, you know, I wouldn't turn down the sale, but I also wouldn't encourage as much. I'd literally ask, you know, do you like to read fantasy? What kind of fantasy do you like to read? And if they'd say, oh, I like sci-fi military, you know, or military science fiction, I would send them to a friend's booth because that's not what I write. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you entirely. In fact, I honestly can't even tell you the last time I actually bothered with getting a table at a convention for that very reason. Like the math just isn't there. And it's the same thing. And I'm sure, you know, we run into a lot of the same people and things. And you hear that like, oh, you know, I did really good at this one. You know, I made a profit. But I'm like, the math doesn't work, right? So look, if you're going to convention, your hotel's probably going to cost three or 400 bucks. As David mentioned, you know, if you're paying five bucks a copy and you're selling them for 10, you're only getting five bucks, right? So by the time you do the gas, by the time you do the food and everything else, you're talking, you need to sell hundreds and hundreds of copies to actually be profitable. It's just not going to happen. But it is a good way to meet people. And it is a good way, like I've gotten years later, fan mail from people who bought my book at some convention. And I only know because they they tell me years later, they message me and they tell me they really like my stuff or whatever. But as far as selling books at the convention, I don't worry about it. I think the connections that you make are the most important thing you leave a con with. I mean, you can feel good about selling 20, 40, 100 books. But there was a school teacher from a local school district in Kansas City who picked up a copy of my kid's book, The Claude Makes a Friend. And she liked it enough that they ended up bringing in 60 copies for the students to read. And it became a part of their curriculum for a few years. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been at the con. There was a gentleman who's in the army who brought my whole Ankh series to Afghanistan with him when he got deployed. I mean, you walk away with stories that really inspire you, that you're like, God, I got to keep doing this because not everybody hates me. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. I think the important thing is to balance your time, right? So when you have a table, and I know we're going to talk about tips for selling, but when you have a table, you don't want to be stuck at it the entire time, right? So you got to balance your time between networking with other authors, doing your panels, meeting people, and all of that, but then also have time for your table, right? So at this point, I rarely do any table stuff or table time just because I get more value out of the other pieces. I kind of view the conventions at this point as like, I'm going to see my friends and hang out and meet people and and that sort of thing. And I'm not going to worry about a table. But if you're at a table and you are going that route, not to say that that's bad. And early on, you definitely probably should because, you know, it's hard to find readers and that's one way to find a few. So I think my number one thing is don't try to oversell. 
I found what worked best for me was just to engage people in conversation as they were walking by. Hey, how's it going? How are you enjoying the convention? And sometimes if they're personable, you don't even have to talk about your books. They're going to ask, right? So I would just engage them in conversation, be polite. And if you're not comfortable selling, take that method and don't over-engage. So I highly recommend having your elevator pitch ready. What always worked for me is if somebody would slow down and take a look at the books or, you know, smile, I would try to draw them in with a joke. You know, I'd say, oh, I've read all of these. They're really funny. And, <laughs> you know, they'd come over and they'd say, oh, wait, did you write these? And I'd introduce myself <laughs> and I would ask, you know, do you like fantasy? And they'd say, yeah, I do. Then I'd go into my pitch and it was short and gentle. And it was at the same time, I repeated it so many times, people in the booze next to me would remember it. <laughs> and a lot of times they'd buy the books. So, you know, it, it worked. But the reason I bring this up is it's really important to be personable and it's really important to talk to people. There are a lot of authors that get a table and then stare at the floor the whole time or look at their computers or stare at their phones. You're not there to be on your phone or your computer. You're there to make connections with potential readers. After that, after you do connect with those readers, if they pick up your book and start reading, then shut up. <laughs> Give them the time to read your words. Don't interrupt their thoughts because if they like it, you want them to read it. So if they're reading it and they like it, they're going to buy it. Yeah, 100%. You can tell I'm out of practice because I didn't even think about saying the pitch thing, but you're 100% right. And it doesn't have to be like David said, you don't need a paragraph pitch, right? When somebody would come up, if they eyeballed my Assassins Incorporated, my one line was, it's a science fiction story about an assassin who gets hired to kill himself. <laughs> Perfect. And then let them ask the questions, right? So I like to talk, which is part of the reason you invited me. <laughs> and my pitch was a little longer for angst, but I could always tell if they laughed at a certain point, they would buy the book. So if I may, I would say, you know, I read a lot of fantasy growing up. Most of them were about younger people with great power and potential, but no direction. They'd meet a wizard who would send them on a path to becoming a hero. Angst was the guy who got passed up for all of that. He's in his 40s. He's going through a midlife crisis, and he knows that <laughs> the only way he could be happy is to be a hero, like a knight in shining armor. And, you know, at that point, they're either going to read or run. Yeah, 100%. And David really is really good at selling at conventions. I was always really impressed standing there watching him do his thing. Just as a sidebar, I don't know, I just thought of this. My all-time favorite pitch I ever heard anybody give is an author friend of mine named Jason Fedora. And he's a great, big, burly, scary-looking man from Mississippi. He's got a big, gravelly Mississippi voice. And the first convention I ever went to with him is he was sitting at his table. And this guy's like, I don't know, J.H., what is he, six and a half feet tall, something like that? He's a big dude. Yeah. Maybe a little shorter. I don't know. He's big. For a career, he was a prison guard. So he's sitting there in his jeans and boots with his boots kicked up on the table. He's got his fedora on. He's got a big old beard. Real scary looking guy, right? Then these poor like teenagers would come rolling by his table and go, Hey, bub, you like to read? <laughs> They'd go, yeah. <laughs> He'd go, well, this book right here, I'll tell you what. The girls in it, they kick more ass than the dudes. <laughs> it would just go into this pitch, but it worked so well. And people would be like, oh, okay, I'll buy it. You know, <laughs> killed me every time all day, just sitting there laughing at them. Yeah. I mean, it's really about what works for you. What are you comfortable saying? 
And if you go to the cons prepared with that in mind, it's going to go very well. Yeah. And I would definitely recommend like starting out, have a pitch, keep it simple. Look at the person, know when they're engaging with you. It's not that complicated. You can tell if somebody's interested in what's going on with you. There's a couple other little things you can do to reel people into your table. JH stole one of mine. Uh, The candy and chocolate. Yeah, I'd put free candy out on my table because everyone will roll through and snag your free candy. Yeah. Especially if you're at like a great big convention, like one of the big media cons where there's 30, 40, 100,000 people roaming through. You're probably only going to see those people once. And it, sometimes the booth area is so busy that they may just walk right past you and never come back. But if you've got candy for free, it's hot in those places. They may not have eaten. They're going to roll over and get some free candy and start talking to you. Yeah. I used to have a replica of the giant sword. My book series is an enormous sword. It's like five feet tall. And I had a replica of it at the con so people could take a picture of it or take a picture with it. And that was a good draw because they would stick around. I also had a, a number of friends that would cosplay as characters for my books and they were all very pretty and much better looking than me. And that would also be a draw. Attractive ladies in armor. That was a very good shtick David had going for him. <laughs> it was and it wasn't like, so they were all friends. They all read my books. And so there was an advantage to, they weren't just like hired models, but at the same time, they were all pretty. And sometimes that was a little intimidating to people too. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the nerds liked them, some of them, and the, some of the nerds were scared away. But then the nerds liked him from afar. You had to reel him in with a fishing pole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, then they got stocky. <laughs> but no, they, they certainly made the cons fun and memorable. Yeah, fair enough. The other thing I wanted to call out, one thing I was doing when I was still doing a lot of tables is I got a tablet so that I could run credit cards and not just have to use my phone every time, you know, so I was using like Squarespace. And it occurred to me that something really smart yeah. I could do was two things. One, I would put on a slideshow on the tablet and I would set it facing the crowd as they were walking up. And it would just be pictures of me at different events, pictures of book covers, pictures of me floating on the river, whatever things that they would stop and watch for a minute. Yeah. Did the pictures of you help? (laughs) Not the pictures of me, but a lot of people would stop and ask about the river pictures and then engage with me, you know? Yeah. Um, But the other thing with that tablet is I would have it queued up where if I started talking to somebody and they were like partially interested, I would have a way they could sign up for my newsletter on that tablet. Absolutely. And then there are little things you could do. Like one of the things that people really appreciated, especially since my books are mostly series, is I would bring bags. I mean, even grocery store bags, you know, they come to these, depending on the con, they come to buy lightsabers and (laughs) books and, you know, Indiana Jones artifacts. And I mean, everything in comic books, And so just having something to make it convenient is always appreciated. Yeah. And then the other one, too, anytime somebody would come by me in costume, if it was like a cool costume, something, I mean, I would just always compliment them or whatever. But if it were things that I was geeky about that I immediately was excited about, like if somebody came strolling by in like a Mandalorian armor, like if you go look at my website, some of the old pictures are me with people in different cosplays. Those were people who happened to walk by my table. I got excited, told them I love their costume and asked if I could come around and take a picture with them. And I just did that because I'm goofy. But what amazed me was how many of them would turn around and buy my books as a result. Yeah, I did something similar. I I mean, I would take as many pictures as I could, put them up on Facebook and people would find themselves that way and find me that way. Yeah, that as well. And connect with people in real time if you can. Like 
if somebody's like, oh, I'd like to talk to you more later or whatever, then that's a great time to be like, all right, well, let's connect on Facebook right now or Twitter or whatever, right? You had also mentioned panels earlier, and uh, panels are an important part of going to cons because then people get to learn a little bit more about you and what you believe and how you interact. And that can also help with sales. Yeah, 100%. We're going to SoonerCon soon. There was a SoonerCon early on. I just had my first Assassins Incorporated come out uh, that was published through Yard Dog Press. And Yard Dog Press always has a big presence at SoonerCon. And they usually have what they call the Yard Dog Press Roadshow, which is like just a goofy entertainment hour, like some improv and silly dances and whatever, right? So I had gone up for that and Selena, my publisher, had me get on stage and we read a portion out of Assassins Incorporated where I did like the reading and the narrator and the main character. And then Selena did the parts that was the mom and the crowd thought it was really funny. And so then I tried to slip away, but they had me come back out to do one of the silly dances. And so I'm up on stage being goofy. People are laughing and that's all well and good. We were doing this skit that was about like the Wizard and Oz. And so... There was something said about Dorothy kicking off her shoes. So I attempted to gently kick my shoe off the stage because I thought people would laugh. But it kind of hung on my foot and launched into the crowd like a missile and hit some poor lady right in the chest. (laughs) And the whole room died, like erupted in laughter. And the next morning by like 11 a.m., they'd sold out of my books. Like that was it. People just seeing me be stupid and laughing, they were like, well, I liked what he read, and he was really stupid on stage. I bet the whole book's really stupid like him. I want to read that. That's going to entertain me. And yeah, they sold out immediately. So I was going to give it a different spin. So physical violence at conventions helps sell books. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Only if it's unintentional violence yeah. and it's very slapstick and funny. <laughs> unintentional. Understood. <laughs> So just not premeditated? As long as it doesn't seem premeditated. (laughs) So if I understand, there are two skills you need as a writer. You need to be able to write a book and read people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. You know, people say they hate salespeople. And, you know, yeah, okay, the door-to-door salesperson that gets in your face can be annoying. But what people love is people that, you know, help them find what they're looking for. If you're helping people find your book or even somebody else's book, you're doing them a service and there's nothing to feel bad for about that. But you do absolutely have to be able to read people at least a little bit to be able to cross that bridge. Yeah, I always approach it as less of a sales job and more of like, all right, ahead of time, I don't care if I sell a single book. My goal is I'm going to meet some new people and I'm going to have a good time. And this is going to be great. And when you walk into it with that approach and you keep your energy high, you're always pleasant. You're always friendly. People will feed off that energy and they'll want to talk to you. They'll be more inclined to buy your books. And and like I said, if approached right, sometimes you don't even have to make a pitch. Sometimes they'll make the pitch for you, you know, and that's the best case scenario. Yeah. If you don't want to be at the con, people can tell. So don't go. You know, I always wanted to be there. I always loved going to conventions for a billion reasons. And you're right. People can tell, you know, they appreciate that positivity and that attitude. And that alone can sell books. So actually, I've met you, I think, at SoonerCon. I think it's where I usually see you. And, you know, just as a case in point, right? Like, 
uh, there are a ton of people there and there's a ton of people I really like. I make a point of I will walk the floor and I will meet every single writer for sure. I will attempt to have a conversation with every single artist, every single vendor. Some of them just stare at you like they don't want to talk to you. Like you walk up to somebody's booth and they're like, why are you bothering me? Then you walk to the next booth and they immediately pounce and just want you to buy their stuff. Right. But David and I became friends because I walked up and like, oh, you're an author. I'm an author, yeah. too. And we had a real conversation. It's been a genuine exchange. And it was like, oh, because David's so genuine and, you know, such a cool guy. That's why I want him to be on the podcast with us. Right. And that's important. And, and a lot of our author friends could learn that because you do walk around and you're like, oh, man. Um, OK, well, it was fun talking to you, I guess. Thank you for your kind words. The thing is, at cons, if you go to enjoy it, if you go to meet people and you know, connect with people because I mean, we're all nerds, right? I mean, yeah. on some level, you're going to a place surrounded by them. And so you're going to find people that you're going to get along with, even if you don't try. And the rest of it, like sales, they'll happen anyway. Yep. I think there's some knowledge that is left out from the statement about people not liking salesmen. People don't like bad salesmen. The best salesmen I know You'll never know they're selling you anything because they won't sell you anything you don't want. My dad was a manufacturer's rep for all of his years working and one of the absolute best salespeople you've ever met for that very reason. He didn't go to sell stuff. One rep called it a monkey remover. They go to remove the monkey and everything else falls into place. All right, cool. Final tips for selling at conventions. Oh, I got one. Keep your table clean. Don't put too many bookmarks out. Don't put too many copies out. In fact, if it looks like you're running out of stuff, that's better. Props to Selena if you ever listen to this. I'm not going to talk about how embarrassing it was at my first convention <laughs> when she came over and knocked over my Lincoln Log Tower of bookmarks. <laughs> if you have anything free to give away, that's cool. I've seen people do little short stories on pamphlets. That's all right. There's different little things you can do like that. But yeah, make it look like you're sold out. Be polite. Be friendly. Don't be the person who gets in the middle of the aisle and starts waving people over. Yeah, don't pounce. Yeah, don't pounce. And, you know, give people a little space, too. Yeah, 100%. All right, cool. Well, David, tell the folks where to find you. So the best place to find me is djprights.com, W-R-I-T-E-S. And there are links to all my other social medias and YouTubes and, and interwebs and internets from there. And I look forward to, to seeing you. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I was super glad to have you on. This has been great. J.H., where do the people find you? They can find me at jhfleming.net. I'm on Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, Tumblr, soon to be YouTube, Fiverr as an editor if you need, if you're an author in need of an editor. And I'll also be at SoonerCon. Woo, SoonerCon. Not to oversell it, best convention ever. <laughs> um, and I'm Philip Dreyer Duncan. As always, you can find me at philipdreyerduncan.com and wherever books are sold, you can probably find my books. Also, if you're listening to this, the podcast has its own Twitter now, which is. Uh, you think I'd probably remember that before I went to plug it? <laughs> Future bestseller pod. It's got the logo. You can find it. Anyway, Chris, where can the people find you? Well, you can find my OnlyFans. No, at no, 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 no. Cut it. That's it. We're done. David, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.